Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. But before we kind of do all of that stuff and think about, you know, the next and the new and what we're doing, I want to take a Sunday for us to step back and almost, if we can, put the horse blinkers on and not think about those things and think about who we are in the middle of what we're doing. Like actually, who are we as we do these new things? Because you and I know that it's possible to do very, very exciting things, like seemingly glamorous things, things that earn lots of money, things that you could put on Instagram, and yet all the while, on the inside, be inwardly empty, feeling grey, and feeling somewhat purposeless. Am I communicating? And equally, I think we know that we can do things that the world would never applaud at, that seem to be very mundane, that no one really cheers on, and yet at the same time that you do that thing, have this overwhelming, fizzing kind of joy that puts a smile on your face and peace in your heart. We know that we can do things that the world may never see, but as we are aware that the Lord sees, we can live with this kind of sense of purpose and meaning and joy and strength. So we, ha- we have to be focused on who we are and what's going on inside our hearts before we get caught up with running away with what could be just another very busy year and we find ourselves lastly down the line thinking like, oh, am, I, am I lost in the middle of all of this stuff? And when I think about my own heart, and like public confession time, um, hopefully because you all concur, I don't know, but... When I think about my own heart, you know, I had some holiday, come back, and there's always that like bump, especially if you've been away for like a two week stint, the kind of, the transition to real life again, and like trying to like just do, and uh, it can be, I found this time a bit of a, like, it's been tough, like I've, my heart has been like, you know, like felt a bit vulnerable, if I'm honest, and like on the surface, I feel like in my heart, everything's fine, like ticking on, doing the stuff, but, if you were to ask me in an honest moment, and here we are in church, so why not be honest? If you were to ask me in an honest moment, I think deep, deep, deep down, I feel pretty depleted. And not in a sense of like, hey, like give it a couple of good nights sleep and you'll be fine. Like, I'm actually functioning okay. But when I think at a deep kind of subtonic level, I think, no, I think there are some reservoirs that have been depleted. And talking like with many of you, this is the kind of testimony that's coming back. Even the community group we share, going back to everything, actually, no, the, the, the majority of us, at a deep level, feel somewhat tired. Even talking to some pastor friends this week, you know, like pastors, they're the ones who should be on top of their spiritual game, basically saying, no, I feel tired. And I think that's the general mood of the moment, which is an odd one, because we, I think if we thought, hey, everything's opening up, like we can begin to move forward now, we think, ooh, Party time, yes, and actually the reality is thinking, I just get it through my days at the moment, I can't, I, I'm extra capacity. And what I want to, uh, just to pay attention to this and speak into this, so that when we do talk about other things that we will do, because there are always things to be done, we can do it with a, a growing sense of our soul being filled up, if that's okay. Which is what takes us to John 15, and if you've been at Trinity for a while, you think, haven't we spoken from this passage? Yes, we have, because it's a very important passage for living the Christian life, where Jesus speaks about abiding in him. 
Because the analogy that's used here, that Jesus used, that he picks up, that God's people have used for millennia up to this point, is this analogy where God's people were viewed as this, this vine. We probably don't see vines today apart from on kind of wine bottles and wine adverts, but this idea that God's people were this vine and God is the gardener or the vine dresser. And so that God's people in, in the Old Testament, at the very um, external doors, the gates of the temple, a vine was engraved into the entrance. So as you walked in, there was this reminder, you are like a vine. You are being planted by God. You are tended by God. You are watched over by God. And your role is to bear fruit among the nations. And yet what happened as we read the Old Testament is that due to our sin, due to our disobedience, due to our basically our unwillingness to be pruned and helped by God, we wither and we fade. So in Psalm 80, we read this, that the psalmist writes and basically laments, why have you, talking to God, broken down its walls, the walls of the garden, so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, he says, God Almighty, and look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root that your right hand has planted. How many people feel like if you were a vine, if you're an artistic person, you might like this. You feel like, yeah, I feel pretty empty right now. There's not much fruit on my branches. I'm existing, I'm doing fine, but like in terms of flourishing and blooming, not so much. This is what he says, he's lamenting this. And into this situation where God will say, we're the vine, God's the vine, Jesus steps in and he says something radical and centralizes himself in our thinking. And he says, John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me stays connected to me as a tree vine. In him, he it is that bears much fruit. He says, like, this is startling, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not like in between phase here. What Jesus does is, I am now the true vine. We are withering, but Jesus flourishes. We are fruitless, but Jesus is fruitful. Jesus is bringing energy and rejuvenation and life. And if we can connect to Jesus, he says, you will receive the rejuvenation, the regeneration, the life that sources through, courses through Christ's being. And so what he says is, your job is now to abide in me, rest in me. Abiding is not a word that we we normally use today. We don't if we meet someone say, so where dost thou abide in London? You know, thou abideth in Streatham. Streatham. You know, we don't like, that's not just how we, but what it really is talking about, and as Greek readers would have um, read this, abiding is just like living, dwelling, where, where you dwell. So Jesus tells some of his disciples, if you find someone worthy to stay in, abide there, basically, remain there. It's the same word, it's just an everyday, kind of word. So it's this idea that you can live physically in Fulham, and yet spiritually the place that I actually dwell is in Christ. Which means that I take this Christ with me and he lives within me and I live within him so that whether I get on the bus or the train or on the bike or if I'm meeting someone, wherever I actually physically am, I am spiritually invited to rest in the presence of Jesus. The message version says it like this, live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. 
That is, practice a lifestyle where that you become increasingly comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Don't just dwell there like you might do in a hotel room. Like you just, if you're like me, I just flop over my suitcase, live out the suitcase, then shut it up and then leave. I'm not like one of those super organized people like, hey, within five minutes, everything has to be hung up and I have to like imagine this is my new house. Sorry, Jackie. You now think very little of me, I'm not sure. But no, you're not to live like that. It's like when you become a Christian, the idea is that you make yourself at home, that you put things on the wall, that you do open up your luggage and you put your clothes out. You establish yourself in the presence of Christ. If there are corners of Christ's presence that you don't feel comfortable, you don't just shut them off, you actually explore and you bring that into the light so that you can be fully comfortable in the presence of Jesus wherever you are, whatever conversation you are in. And the result of this, Jesus says, is fruit bearing. He says in verse 5 again, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And this is, the, this is the will of Jesus, that we actually do bear much fruit. He says in verse 8 again, by this my Father is glorified. This is our passion, to see the Father glorified in London and the nations. That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That if your life can bear fruit, there can be an, another way in which you display another power source from your life that doesn't depend on everything going well in your day to day, but depends on the person of Jesus Christ. And fruit, it, this can talk about lots of many different things. But Paul later, he talks in Galatians 5 about fruit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the primary fruits of the Holy Spirit, things that live within our hearts that will change the way we approach anything that we happen to be doing. This is an inner life thing, that you can flourish in your inner life even when the externals of your life don't seem to be going so well. And this is what we're after. This is what I'm inviting you into us as a church into to display something different that we live from a different kind of power source which is where our abide days come in it's not fancy it is what it says on the tin there are days where we corporately choose to abide in Jesus you might say well don't we always abide in Jesus yes we do but there are moments where corporately together we choose to renew and refresh and remind ourselves of the joy that it is to be in the presence of Jesus. If you're in a relationship or in a marriage, you will know that you are always married. You are always in a relationship, but there are times when it's good to have a date night, to get dressed up, men put some perfume on, like brush your teeth, all those kind of things, and go and sit opposite the person and actually just enjoy each other. It doesn't make you more married, but you are renewing something, your love, you're kindling something in your relationship together. And our abide days are that, are us reminding ourselves of how good Jesus actually is to us. So this is the, the, the details, and I want to talk a bit more, but here are just the details. Apart from this Sunday, or this, this month, the first Wednesday of every month, we are inviting the whole church into what we're calling these Abide Days. It's not this week because I think it was the first of September and it was all a bit too early for everyone. So it's this Wednesday coming, 
is our first abide day. But you can stick it in your calendar now, the first Wednesday of every month. Just It's the repeating thing, all day events, so you can't miss it. Abide day. And this is what we're inviting you into. We're inviting you to firstly fast from food, and you can do as you will with this, but our invitation is to eat Tuesday night dinner, and then fast on Wednesday, and then gather in your community group on Wednesday night, and then some people will choose to, to break fast on the Wednesday night, some people will choose to break fast on the Thursday morning. It's up to you, um, this is not uh, a law, this is an invitation. And while those moments come where you have lunch and you're not eating, we're inviting you to essentially book some time out of your diary and go for a walk with Jesus, or find some time alone with Jesus, Put your headphones on, put some worship on, lift up your heart to Jesus and commune with him. Be reminded about how sparklingly good Jesus actually is. There is something powerful when we do this together, because you could fast anytime. But there's something powerful about when we come together and choose as a body to do this. One thing at a very practical level, it helps at 4pm when you're so tempted just to break fast because you're so hungry, knowing that the rest of the community group are actually fasting at the same time. So there's a good little bit of like peer pressure along the way, but there's also a really good reason why soldiers are trained in how to march in unison. Because, I mean, I'm no battle expert, but I'm guessing that they don't actually march in unison when it comes to actual battlefields and war, but there is something that joins an army together when they're trained together. There is a strength, there is a unity, there is a purpose that comes about that is uh, more significant than just actually what happens. And as a church, we want to practice some corporate rhythms together. So we're going to practice these abide days. And I want to do two things now. I want to talk about fasting and I want to talk about God. Because you might say, that Daniel, that all sounded great. Like Bible, okay, tick, we could read Bible, we could pray, tick. But it all kind of went downhill when you mentioned fasting. Like, what? Like, why did you have to ruin the abide day by including fasting in it? Because I don't think anyone here is like, yeah, fasting is my favourite you know, hobby to do. Like, I just love not to eat and feel you know, awful at 4.30 on a Wednesday afternoon. Like, why, why would we include fasting into this? First thing to say is, Jesus actually... He expects that fasting will just be a normal rhythm of the Christian life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, when you give financially, and when you fast. It's just like, this is just kind of what's expected of, of, of the Christian. And when Jesus goes up and he's ascended right now at the right hand of the Father, he says, these are the days when you will fast, longing for the presence and the power of Jesus. And the scriptures talk about many things. Talk about fasting for breakthrough in your life, fasting for a new season, in your life, fasting for spiritual power, fasting sometimes just out of contrition over your sin and your lukewarm heart, you just come to Jesus like that. But at the very foundational level as to why we fast is actually God himself. That we starve our flesh from food from time to time so that we can feast on God. That sometimes our flesh which is good and a good gift from God, and food and the, the kind of the nibblings of the world, if you will, they can sometimes be so gorged that our spiritual senses get diminished. And fasting has this ability to just allow our physical senses to take a break for a while and to allow our spiritual senses to awaken again to the things of God.
Fasting has this amazing ability to sensitize us to the things of the spirit. That our spirit can actually somehow be renewed even as our body actually feels like it's wasting away. John Piper, an American author, he said it like this. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's like, yeah, I've seen the glory of God and I want to go on and do other things with my life. He said, no, no, we've not seen the glory of God. He said, it's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. Sometimes enjoying the good things in life can actually get in the way of the, the best things, which is God and his kingdom. And that's all we're doing. We're saying, I'm going to forego some of the good things of this life for a short season so that I can feast on some of the best things, which is the Lord and his glory and his kingdom. The way that I experience it very often, it's just like an emotional experience when I'm fasting, is this sense that I've just put a little bit of distance between me and the world. I don't know if any like, experienced that. Like, as I'm fasting and you feel that kind of like, I don't know, maybe I'm just like lightheaded, I don't know. But why are you so far away? I don't know. But I think it's a spiritual thing. But I think it's actually it's this idea that actually, as I, as I realise, no, there is something more important than being physically connected to this world the whole time. There is, a, there is a God of glory out there. There are spiritual realities. There is eternity. And it's almost like the, the, this earth kind of just one step removed just for a moment. And I'm reminded, I, I belong to another realm. The fasting has that impact on our hearts. Let me just say two things about fasting. Two things that I think sometimes we get into our kind of uh, uh, spiritual knickers in a twist about, if you will. We don't fast normally because we are so hungry for God we've just forgotten to eat I think sometimes people they think well I don't feel very spiritual so maybe now is not the time to do fasting like this idea that I fast because I just long for God so much and I hunger for God so much that I'm just going to forget food for a while and just be with him that is sometimes the case but I would suggest the majority of our fasting is not because we feel so hungry for God, but because we want to kindle hunger in our heart. It's a way of repenting in our heart, saying, Lord, I want to know you more. It's a choice in our heart to say, I don't feel for you right now. I know there's a lack of hunger in my, in my heart for you right now. Therefore, I choose to fast so that I can awaken my love and my passion for you again. Does that make sense? Because I think if we just wait for this amazing hunger that's just overcome us, and now, I will, now, is, now, now I'm on course, I'm going to fast for a bit, because I feel so good about Jesus. But the reason we do it is to actually kindle our love for him. It's a choice. And the second thing to say is this, fasting normally, and I'm not like limiting God in any way, but I want to say normally, pastorally, normally, does not lead to immediate breakthrough in your life. We're playing a, a medium-term to long-term game here. I mean, when I first started fasting, I was like super passionate about Jesus, I was reading biographies about other people who fasted, so I was like, that's what you gotta do. And honestly, I kind of viewed it like this kind of spiritual career, you know, I've 
the more serious you get, the more you do these things, the earlier you get up, the more you fast, etc. So I was like, well, this is the next thing to do. Like John Wesley fasted this time. I'm going to fast that much. In fact, I was set the alarm. I'm like, oh, he fasted at that time. I set it a lot, like a little bit earlier. So I was like, John Wesley, this like weird legalistic kind of competitive streak in me. And so I would, I would do this. And I remember the first few times I started trying to fast. And, and honestly, I was, I was disappointed. I, was, I think I probably deep down expected like a personal well done from Jesus. I was like, you know, like a certificate. Now you have reached this level of Christianity. Well done. You are very, very special. Like there was no, I think I was kind of expecting like angels to appear before me, like this immediate like realm to live in, like Paul talked about the third heavens. Maybe I'd get to visit there for a short time. I don't know. Like, but basically throughout that day, I just felt awful. And, like, and for a lot of times, that's just how you feel on the day. Like anyone can testify, people are chuckling, so I'm guessing this is communicating. <laughs> on the actual day, you just genuinely feel groggy, maybe you've got a headache. But that does not mean that the fasting is ineffectual. We are feeding our spirit and maturity and growth and godliness and humility and spiritual power and authority. Don't get given to you overnight. They come and they are regenerated in your heart. One degree of glory says to another. One degree of glory to another. And we may not see those as perceptible stages that we are walking through. But if you are prepared to play the long game with and to walk with him as a disciple, just loving Jesus, being loved by him, in 10 years time, you might be surprised at the fruit that is being born in your life. So please don't be disappointed if it gets to 9 p.m. on Wednesday and you're like, what was all that about? Why did they say fasting? It's better with just the Bible and prayer. No, no, no. We're doing something deep in our souls. Deep, the psalmist says, calls to deep. And so we're going to walk with Jesus. And as I close, we're going to break bread together in a few moments. I, I want to talk about God. Because I think one of the reasons... Deep down, like the reason behind some of our reticence that still may be in your heart now, could just be because of how you view God. And I'm speculating on your behalf to let the Holy Spirit do his work. But A.W. Tozer says this, let me just say this. He says at the beginning of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which if you haven't read, I would ask you to read. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So the question is, who is it that comes into your mind when you think about God? What is your idea about who God is? Because I think many people are reticent to engage in days like this, or to throw themselves into church life, or into prayer meetings, or into community groups. Because there is this idea, this wrong idea of who God is. Because left to our own devices, without the Bible, I think our idea of God goes something like this. Because this is how we relate to others. God basically works on the basis of our good behaviour. I'm actually going to be more than a few minutes, guys. I just realised what you're doing, communion. So you can, you can sit down. <laughs> Sorry, like miscommunication there, you could take a break. So when I say a few minutes, I mean like a poor line. Like, <laughs> I could be here for a, a good while. I thought to get your hopes up too early, like 
my heels really dragging on today. I mean, um, sorry guys, what's going on there? Um, right, where am I? Right, we're talking about gods, right? Like our idea of God goes something like this: that you know, he kind of accepts us on our on our kind of good behaviour. We don't say it that crassly because we know the right Christian verses to say. But basically, God likes us and he loves us and he's really thrilled with us when we walk well with him and we do well and we read our Bibles and we kind of hit a spiritual groove for a while and think, hey, I've, I've now got this. I know how to be a good Christian. In those moments, God's heart kind of swells and thinks wonderful things of you and, and wraps you up in his presence and thinks, my love is set upon you, my chosen one. Look how well you're doing this year. Because that's kind of like our love at a human level, it, it works on conditions very often. Even in our most unconditional relationships, marriages, our love can grow thin. There could, could be conditions we didn't even know our heart had. We can withdraw too quickly. We can work on the basis of they give me stuff, I feel nice things about them. They help me, I feel nice, lovely things about them. And we can then transport that onto God. And many Christians, I think, feel, many people in London feel like God is basically this kind of being in the sky who is quietly disappointed that people aren't doing better. Like, look at the mess that they've made of everything. Look at, look at what's going on in Afghanistan. Look at what's going on in that person's life. Look at the choices they're making. If that is the Lord, as a Christian, who's like this God who's kind of quietly disappointed with you, why would you turn to him? If God were this God who's like, you know, just critiquing you the whole time, spotting all the mistakes, and basically like quietly grumping with you, why would you choose to throw yourself into an abide day? If God was just like shaking his head and just thinking, oh, I can't, maybe 2022. Maybe that's when they'll get it together. But at the moment, like, I just need to see how they're going to do it. Like, what, why would you turn to a God like that? That, that? that is not a compelling vision, nor a biblical vision of God if you are a Christian. And this is what Jesus does here. Is he sets the record straight and talks about particularly two things, his love and his joy. Which is why he says in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. The words of scripture that we have. Let these words shape our vision of who God, God is. Because if we're left to our own devices with the Bible shut, we will create God in our own image, a God who loves conditionally. Because that's the only way naturally we know how to live. If I don't do well, he's not pleased with me. But if we are in Christ, if we abide with him, if we dwell with him, there is an utterly different way in which God chooses to relate to us. In his love and in his joy. So let me just talk about this. Firstly, his love. And this is as we break bread together and as we do these abide days. This is the God whom we are coming to. Firstly, his love. He says this in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Jude 1 says this, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
as the Father, just think on this, meditate on this moment. Jesus is here, and the Father is there, and the Father loves Jesus infinitely so, and eternally so, perfectly. There is this overwhelming, kind of infinite volcano of love from the Father for the Son. And Jesus says, it's in this way that I have loved you. And why did Jesus choose to love you? Why did he choose, if you're a Christian, to say, I have set my love on you? It is not because he thought that is a sincere person. It's not because that person one day will have faith. It's not because that person will one day go to church. It's not because that person is actually slightly more spiritually inclined than this person. In Deuteronomy, we're told this in Deuteronomy 7, the reason why God loves us. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He says because you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out of out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. So the Lord says, Why do I love you? And he says, Because I love you. If you what is that about? But like that sounds kind of like something you might find on a Clinton's card. But it's actually profound. Because what the Lord is saying is that the source of my love for you as a Christian is not found in you, it's found in the Lord. That his love comes from his own love, which comes from his own love. And if it was nothing about you in the first place, it would be nothing about your good behaviour today and it would be nothing about your good behaviour tomorrow because it never started there and it will never finish there. It is all residing in the heart of God. For from God and through God and to God are all things, including his lavish love for you. Which is good news, amen? amen. It deserves it. He loves us freely. One of the things that... I, for some reason, I just don't like doing is is changing the bed sheets at home. And sorry, Jackie, like things are getting worse and worse. I know, I don't know. And I have to remind myself that I'm not like at uni anymore, and it's the responsible thing to do with a wife to change the bed sheets. I don't know why, because it really just—it's one of those things that it like literally like switches. I just don't know. I don't know. Normally, it comes late at night. Like, I was changed just as I want to go to bed. We've got any first sort of effort. I don't know what it is. And like so I've learned over the years not to like let my kind of grumpiness out there. You've got to keep it inside because it doesn't go well for you. So I'm like, yeah, sure. And I've just learned to embrace the journey. But for years I was like, I did this like really, you know. Like, <laughs> right, right. And it's heavy. You know, lift up a mattress, especially the corner that you can't really get to. Trying to lift up the mattress to your back, and you're like, oh, like, I don't have to do this, you know, over the uni days where you just like let, let, let live and it's just like, anyway. Sometimes I think we think that Jesus loves us like that. Like he's been asked by the Father to love us. It's like, great. Like, do you see how like poorly they're doing? How little affection they have for me? Fine, I'll love them, I'm getting on with it, I'm doing it, I'm loving it. Like we feel like Jesus is kind of like, the Father has loved, told me to do this, so sure. He loves us, but he's kind of like under an obligation. 
fine, I'm, I'm loving you, I'll love you, fine, like, here's some more love, we'll go. But we're told in the Psalms that the Lord is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. There's no obligation on Jesus. There's no outside obligation on behalf of Jesus to love us. The reason why he loves us is because he actually loves us. Because he actually loves us. And the source of that love is not in your passionate heart. The source of that love is in his passionate heart. So you can come to him with a lukewarm heart, feeling tired, depleted, really unsure whether you want to do this. And he loves the slightest of turnings of his children to him. He loves it when we come to him. He loves us. This is the first thing we're to abide in, in his love. And the second thing is his joy. He says this in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is good news. I don't know sometimes why Christianity has such a bad rap. Like, it's after our joy. There is good news that Jesus is actually a happy God. Did you know that? In 1 Timothy 1, Paul talks about the glory of the gospel is that God is a happy, a blessed God. This is good news that when we turn to God, we find him not wringing his hands, worried about what's going on around the world, not twitching his thumbs you know, anxiously. He is a relaxed and happy and beaming God. One Puritan writer said, live much under these smiles of God. Live your life wherever you are, on the bus, at work, at home. Live much under the smiles of God. The happy, joy-filled smiles of Jesus. Because he's a happy being. And so when you come to, to God, you come to one who is happy. Who do you like spending time with? Do you like spending time with people who are relaxed and happy and non-judgmental and who just like you for who you are? This is Jesus when you are a Christian. He's a happy being. And here's the amazing thing. His joy is actually increased when you turn to him with your sin and with your shame and with your guilt. When you turn to Jesus, his joy in you and in life doesn't diminish. Like when we go through hardships and trying to help people, like we might, we might get depleted to help someone else up. Jesus' joy actually increases when we come to him with our sin and our lukewarmness. Like a doctor who actually, if he knows, I've got the resources, the knowledge, and I can see what's going on, and I can fix this, there is a certain level of joy being able to, I'm guessing, to like, fix the problem, like, I've got a solution, this is what I trained for, there is a certain sense of joy and satisfaction, I can give you the medicine that you need. Jesus is the great physician, and when we turn to him with our brokenness and sin and shame, there is a joy that enlarges, if that is even possible, because he knows he can meet the needs of you and me, sinners, with guilt and shame and needs and depletion in our soul. He says, this is what my death and resurrection was for. I am so glad to be able to help you. This is what my sacrifice, my death on this cross was for. This is why I was raised to a brand new life just for this very moment. When the moment you turn to me, I can apply all grace and spiritual nourishment to your soul. 
It actually brings Jesus joy to be able to help us. And we minimize the cross and his resurrection if we say, well, I'll just wait till I feel less guilt and then I'll come to church again. Then I'll come to Jesus again. No, we maximize and we glorify the cross of Christ when we come to God with our shame and with our sin. And joy sparks in his soul to be able to help us. Thomas Goodwin puts it like this, Christ's own joy and comfort and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and pardoning and relieving and comforting his members here on earth. This is wonderful news. So you might feel depleted and stuck right now, but you can turn to a God who loves you and actually takes great joy in you.